0: welcome back to the emily show for the first episode of 2023 yay do i have a soundboard that can make these sounds yes am i willing to remember which one is the crowd goes wild at the moment no but that's okay we're here it is a new year and we are still talking about well the cases that were brought to us in 2021 and 2022 because law takes forever Today, we're getting a bit more into all of the litigation that's going on in the Rust case. I haven't seen much coverage of this at all, but there are a whole bunch of things going on with Rust. Not only do we have the Alec Baldwin cross-complaint that he is suing um, others involved, Hannah Gutierrez, Reed the Armorer, Dave Halls, the AD, Seth Kinney from PDQ Arm & Prop, and the company, and Sarah Zachary, the um, head of, of Props. But we have another cross-complaint from Dave Halls, the first AD. Yes, more cross-complaints. We have a bunch of motions to quash and motions to strike. And there's a ton of litigation going on in this case right now. So we're going to look at these cross-complaints. We're going to look at some of the answers and the other like motion stuff that's happening in these cases. And hopefully, my congestion won't bother you too much. I'm sorry. We're just or a little congested, Isn't everyone this time of year? I feel like we just normalize the congestion. I'm sorry if it offends your ears, but we have a lot to do. And there's a lot of information in this complaint from Alec Baldwin that we didn't get to in last week's episode. And we need to just finish that out as we get moving in later in the month to covering the Alec Murdoch cases. So we're going to need some time to catch up on what's going on on those cases and then move into this and maybe, just maybe a few more surprises to come your way. So thank you for tuning into the podcast. I might have more podcasting for you than just once a week coming soon. Oh, don't, you don't, don't be too, well, yes, be too excited. I was going to say, don't be too excited. Be too excited. We're going to have more Emily. It's one of the things you guys asked for a lot, especially after the depth herd trial. You're like, wait, we don't, we don't do things every day. And I'm like, We can do things most days. So there's a lot to come in 2023. But for now, we need to get into today's episode. Welcome to The Emily Show. I'm Emily D. Baker, the internet's go-to legal analyst and big fan of the Cursey Words. I've been a licensed attorney for over 17 years. I'm a former prosecutor, and I break down the legal side of pop culture and entertainment stories we can't stop talking about. We should just get into it. Let's go. Worrying about what's for dinner is so 2022. And truthfully, I kicked that habit in 2022. Worrying about what we're eating for dinner is one of the most stressful things that doesn't need to be stressful. And that's why I'm so thankful to have Green Chef on board as a sponsor here in 2023. Green Chef is a certified CCOF meal kit company and provides meals for all types of lifestyles. So if you are paleo or keto, or just looking for more balanced meals, Green Chef offers a huge range of options to pick from every single week, and they are delivered right to your door. Fresh, organic meals with easy-to-follow recipe cards delivered directly to your door. And to get you started in the new year right, Green Chef is offering an incredible offer of 60% off plus free shipping. You heard me right, 60% off plus free shipping. Free shipping. Just go to greenchef.com slash Emily Baker sixty and use code Emily Baker sixty to get sixty percent off plus free shipping. Find out for yourself why Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well. All right, let's get back to today's episode. All right, so this is the cross complaint we looked at a little bit in our year in review Alec Baldwin's cross complaint in the Mamie Mitchell script supervisor lawsuit. We've talked about all the litigation going on with the script supervisor lawsuit. This is new litigation from when I recorded the last episode. So the end of December was very busy for the lawyers dealing with this. So Alec Baldwin is cross-claiming Hannah Gutierrez Reed the Armorer, David Hall's the First AD, Seth Kinney, the armorer, um, or the prop armorer who provided the who provided the arm, provided the weapons, the bullets, et cetera his company, PDQ Arm & Prop, and Sarah Zachary, who is the head of the props department. And we went through some of it, but we did not get into all of it in the last episode. So we're going to go a little more in depth into this lawsuit and then into the other cross-complaint that's been filed and the litigation stemming now from this cross-complaint. Because once you have another complaint, people have to answer. People can make motions to dismiss and all the other litigation that comes before an answer And that is what we are seeing in this case. So the nature of this case, it lays out the October 21st, 2021 shooting that took the life of Helena Hutchins on the movie set just outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. It talks quite a lot about what the movie was meant to be and what Baldwin's role in it was. But I think the first few uh, paragraphs give us a really good rundown of their perspective of the case. They say this tragedy happened because live bullets were delivered to the set and loaded into the gun. Gutierrez-Reed failed to check the bullets or the gun carefully. Halls failed to check the gun carefully and yet announced the gun was safe before handing it to Baldwin. And Zachary failed to disclose that Gutierrez-Reed had been acting recklessly offset and was a safety risk to those around her. That is their position of the case. This is a well-written cross-complaint. It is very clear it tells their story very well. So even if they were doing this for PR, which I think there's always an aspect of that, of telling the story, this tells the story better than any of the interviews Baldwin has given. It is concise, but it also is full of what they allege to be facts. They brought information from the FBI report. Those are FBI reports. So are those facts? Well, if the FBI report tested bullet and found it to be live, I think that's an uncontroverted fact unless they're going to say the FBI's testing is wrong. So there are some things in here that are going to be factual, other things that are allegations, but it very clearly lays out how this could have happened or at least all of the things that went wrong to allow this to happen. And it really is something that has changed my opinion about this case. Um, From the beginning, there's more details in here about who checked what and and what they noticed, if I was um, the family of Helena Hutchins, this counter, the facts that are laid out in here or the allegations, because again, lawsuits are allegations in shade, the facts as they see them, the allegations as they lay them out are 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 enraging. Like, how could this happen? How could so many people drop the ball to allow this to go so terribly wrong on a movie set? And this tells us, or at least tries to tell us, Some of those answers. It said Baldwin did not know and had no reason to know any of these facts, but cross-defendants did. Kinney and PDQ were the principal ammunition suppliers. Gutierrez Reed was the armorer. Halls was the safety officer on set and Zachary was the prop master. These cross-defendants are professionals who owed a duty to those on set, including Baldwin, to keep the set safe. Everyone on set, including Baldwin, expected and trusted them to do so. I think that's fair. You expect the people you hire to do their job. Hutchins never would have instructed Baldwin to point a gun in her direction and pull back the hammer if she had thought the slightest possibility existed, that it was loaded. Baldwin, who shared the same state of mind as Hutchins in that critical moment, wouldn't have done so under such conditions. I don't like how much Baldwin's, Baldwin has done this time and time again. His lawyers try to do this. This is advocacy of his lawyers. But they try to align Baldwin and Hutchins together. I understand why they do it. Sometimes it just doesn't sit well with me. You will have to let me know what you think about that. But I can understand that they're saying, the cinematographer saying, point this at me so I can get this shot. And the actor holding the thing wouldn't have done that if they thought this was within a realm of a possibility because who would have ever thought that there were live rounds on this set? So I understand it. I understand the advocacy of it, but it doesn't always sit well with me. The cross-complaint goes on to say, there can be no doubt that others have suffered from cross-defendant's negligence far more than Baldwin has. I think that's fair. It says Hutchins lost her life and her young child lost his mother. Producer Joel Souza was shot in the shoulder and has suffered physical and emotional pain. Though by no means comparable, Baldwin must live with the immense grief and resulting emotional, physical, and financial toll caused by the fact that cross-defendant's negligent conduct Assurances and supervision put a loaded weapon in his hand and led him, Hutchins, and everyone else on set to believe that his directed use of the weapon was safe. More than anyone else on that set, Baldwin has been wrongfully viewed as the perpetrator of this tragedy. But these cross claims, Baldwin seeks to clear his name and hold cross defendants accountable for their misconduct. So they make it real clear this is our goal. We are going to hold these cross-defendants to account, and Baldwin seeks to clear his name. So when I say the writing feels like it has um, an edge of PR, they make it very clear as to why it has an edge of PR, that Baldwin is also essentially, from their argument, essentially a victim in all of this. All of these people failed in their job and put a loaded gun in his hand, and he had that gun in his hand when Helena Hutchins was killed, and he's had to live with the immense grief of that. And this is all of their faults, not his. They go on to list all the different parties, where the parties live, um, and who they are. We've already named out who all the players are. They talk about jurisdiction and venue. That's going to come up um, in some of the motions to quash that we will get to later. Through the factual allegations, they go into a very, very long description of how Rust was conceived and that Baldwin and Souza wanted to work together and they wanted to tell a movie in a, or tell a story in a different way, more through the lens of the camera, more through the cinematography and less through the, the story. And that was what they thought of. So the Western Rust, it says, tells the story of a young boy who accidentally kills a local rancher and is sentenced to hang in 1880s Kansas. The boy is broken out of prison by his estranged grandfather, Harlan Rust, an infamous outlaw. That's who's being played by Baldwin in this film. It goes on to say the two flee to New Mexico on a dangerous journey through an unforgiving landscape, running from the U.S. Marshal and Bounty Hunter on their tail and forming a close bond along the way. So that is the, the setup of the movie. It talks about the budgeting and hiring of the crew and that Baldwin was not involved in hiring the crew and who hired who and what, how much Baldwin was supposed to get paid. They said Baldwin's total compensation package for starring and producing was set at 250000 but he gave back 100000 as an investment and he had offered an additional 37500 from his fees. So he had put back into the movie most or at least half of his fees Ask me to do math. It's probably not exactly half, you know, from 250 to 137,500, but you know what I mean. It then talks about emails back and forth about who is who is making decisions, who's making casting decisions, though Baldwin did work closely with Sousa to make casting decisions. He was not making decisions with regard to the rest of the crew and wasn't bringing on the crew that he regularly worked with because they cost more and this but this movie didn't have the budget For that, so they go in and put in a number of emails about who is working with who, who is hiring who, introducing people to each other, etc. There is an email from September twenty first between Baldwin's assistant and others saying that Baldwin wanted to um, find out who's in charge of the guns. So instead of reading the complaint, I'm just going to read the email that they enclosed in the complaint. The formatting on this is excellent, by the way. I mean, there's not a drop shadow. You know how tickled I get by a drop shadow in a complaint. It's It's always a delight. But the formatting on this really has been excellent with all of the emails, text messages, and other discovery that they've put directly into the complaint. It's quite a lot of information. So this is an email back and forth about Alec Baldwin's fitting from September 12th, 2021. Uh, Good morning, Jonah. Thank you so much for setting up and testing the Zoom thing with me. We had perfect reception for Alec's look over the clothes. He wanted me to ask you to find out who was in charge of the guns on this movie and get him some shooting lessons. He also mentioned that whoever is in charge of the gun belts, I believe that is props, should research to see if they had shoulder holsters because he would prefer that to a big waist belt. So I'm assuming they're asking about shoulder hosters being time period appropriate and wanting to wear that versus wanting to wear um, a big gun belt, which can be uncomfortable, I suppose. They also then go into a a bit about the size of his shoes and other items um, with regard to costuming. So he's asking again for training. They then talk about the hiring of Gutierrez Reed, that Baldwin had no role in hiring her that Gutierrez-Reed reached out to Seth Kinney to ask whether he knew of any available armorer jobs. Kinney connected her with Zachary, Sarah Zachary, the head of prop, who then passed her name along to the Rust production managers who ultimately hired her. Procurement of ammunition and prop weapons. Zachary and Gutierrez-Reed were responsible for sourcing and procuring the weapons and ammunition used on the Rust set. Kinney and his company PDQ were, doesn't that mean pretty darn quick or pretty damn quick isn't it just like is this what we're doing pretty damn quick it's just this 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 um one would think so Kinney and his company pdq were the primary weapons and ammunition supplier for the movie rust in early october 2021 zachary and gutierrez reed met with Kinney to collect prop weapons and dummy ammunition to be used on the set of rust police photos and for those of you listening on audio I will try to timestamp this um, so you can come over to where um, this part is and look at the photos that show the prop house and disarray. It doesn't look; it looks like a house location or a house converted into a business location to me. Um, but it is it is not well organized. Though one of the things does look like a a pile of like uh, cardboard boxes and trash. And I will just say, I'm not going to judge someone's trash pile uh, with cardboard boxes. The rest of the stuff from inside does look in disarray. It goes on to say police photos of Kinney's business PDQ show what Zachary and Gutierrez Reed would have encountered on their visit that should have put them on notice of serious safety concerns. I don't know if we can know that. I don't know if we could know that. I just, I don't know when in time these two things happened from the police photos and when the police photos were taken, if the search warrant I, the search warrant should have been executed after the photos were taken, when these photos were taken, what they saw when they got there. If this was always like that, I just, I'm not sure we can assume. But again, this is a lawsuit. It's being written in the light most favorable to the person suing. So they're going to say, obviously, They could have walked in and seen that this was disorganized and knew that this was an issue. But also what we know from other lawsuits is that these individuals had worked together in other contexts. So I just, I'm not sure, but I, so there's my caveat on it. We're not quite sure um, when these photos were taken in relation to what, what Zachary and Gutierrez Reed would have, or would not have seen when they went to pick things up, or if, or if they went to these offices to pick things up, or if things were delivered on set or at another location. We just don't know that. But it is definitely disorganized. In particular, when police searched PDQ, they found the premises in disarray and they attach pictures of disarray. Ammunition, much of it unlabeled was strewn throughout the premises, which literally causes me heart palpitations. Like it it truly is. Um, there are pictures of like ammunition. Just on bags in Ziploc bags on the floor and in unmarked um other boxes, some marked, some not, some just all commingled on a table, some in plastic bags, some not, some in boxes, some not. It goes on to say that live ammunition and dummy rounds were stored haphazardly, showing different boxes of ammo, um, what what it may be, what it's not. It's just a lot. So, yes, there are just things kind of everywhere. It goes on to say, as professional suppliers of dummy and blank ammunition, Kinney and PDQ were required to carefully store, segregate, label, and organize ammunition to ensure that live ammunition did not become intermingled with dummy and blank rounds. Now, that seems like logical, but I don't know who regulates this industry. So I've got questions on that. Um, It seems to say, you know, as professionals, they are required. Required by who? I have questions, but of course, lawsuits. It says they failed to do so. Instead, Kinney and PDQ stored inventory without proper labels, segregation, or organization. Their cavalier disregard for proper separation between live and dummy ammunition was one of the factors that led to the presence of live ammunition on the set of Rust. So this lawsuit is trying to answer the question that we have been asking since 2021. How the fuck did live rounds end up on the set of rust. And they say, well, here are the pictures of everything haphazardly mixed together. That's one of the ways they think that this happened. It goes on to say, according to Kinney's insurance company, Farmer's Insurance Exchange, quote, after Mr. Kinney and his business tendered their defense to farmers in May 2021, Mr. Kinney's attorney suggested that PDQ Arm and Prop had operated from the property. Specifically, he said Mr. Kinney communicated his willingness to be a part of the rust production, negotiated the terms of that participation, sent the gun and ammunition involved in the incident, and sent invoices for that gun and ammunition from the property. Kinney and PDQ are bound by their lawyers' admissions that they supplied the gun and ammunition involved in this incident. So they are coming at this with, hey, there's already insurance stuff going on, of course there is, over Kinney's business, and saying, look, the insurance lawyers have already said he did this. He supplied this. So there's no going backwards now. He's, he's the one who supplied this. The FBI analyzed a substantial amount of ammunition that was collected from the rust set and found dozens of live cartridges. Item 31 alone contained 50 live cartridges. Um, we went through this in the previous episode, but I am baffled. By the volume of live cartridges. And and, uh, it's 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 just it's just mind-boggling. And I'm sure that every actor that had been on this set has to feel physically ill knowing that they were working in such a dangerous work environment. This is a dangerous work environment. 50. One item contained more than 50 live cartridges. That's one item. And so they go through the different FBI lab evidence designations and what they are. And for those of you listening on the audio, it is item after item after item. Item four cartridge from top of cart. This is the pop cart live. Cartridge from top of cart live. Cartridge from bandolier top of cart in the bandolier, in like the thing Chewbacca wears across his chest, like the bandolier that has the things in it live. Cartridge from holster, live. There were live rounds in the bandolier and the holster. And then it went through different ones that were blank rounds, dummy rounds, cartridge from item 12 tray live, cartridge from item 12 tray dummy. So you've got this tray 12 or item 12 tray that has live and dummy rounds mixed. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve 10, 11, 12 dummy rounds And one live round in item 12. And then you have cartridge 24 live, cartridge from item 25 live. On and on and on with live ammunition. It goes on to say the results clearly show that live ammunition ended up on the Rust prop cart. And then it shows pictures of ammunition from the top of the prop cart. Also ended up in the bandolier worn by Baldwin. And it shows pictures of the bandolier with the bullets in it. And the bullets, um, at the end, some of them look like they're silver. Some of them look like they're gold. And so there is supposed to be different marking on these so that you can tell what's live and what's not. I'm not sure which ones are telling us are live or not live. Um, but we have designation, but from the top, when you're not looking at the, the end, the stamped end of the bullet from the top, they all look very similar to my untrained eye. It goes on to say the FBI report on the incident shows multiple cartridges of live ammunition seized off the premises of PDQ during the execution of a search warrant. And that ammunition was commingled on the premises, so commingled at PDQ. So if you go back and watch my past coverage when I talk about could others be charged in this case potentially, I talk about could the uh, person who provided the bullets be charged criminally? Could the the person who was supposed to check the bullets be charged criminally and we talked through that in those episodes um because if you're providing to set a box of dummy rounds and there's live bullets in it it seems negligent to me it doesn't seem like a leap to get to that shit's negligent and it doesn't seem like much of a leap to get to that's criminally negligent It also goes that Kenny also submitted cartridges to the police that contain live ammunition. As a prop supplier, Kenny and PDQ should not have stored live ammunition on the same disorganized premises, let alone commingled it. And then it goes through the different live ammunitions that were collected from the prop location. It talks about Baldwin arriving on the rust set and getting gun safety training from Gutierrez Reed for about 90 minutes, and that Gutierrez Reed went through um, the gun safety measures and Baldwin's lawyers say in this complaint that they're substantially similar to other trainings he got. Gutierrez-Reed, it says, did not instruct Baldwin to check the gun himself. I feel like this is answering the internet. I really do. I feel like this is in here to answer the internet. Yes, it's probably for other reasons, but I feel like this is in here to answer the internet. Gutierrez-Reed did not instruct Baldwin to check the gun himself. In fact, She told Baldwin that it was her job to check the gun, not his. Similarly, Baldwin believed, based on prior gun safety training he received on movie sets, that actors should not unilaterally check guns for live ammunition. If actors want to check a gun for their own peace of mind, they should check the gun only with the armorer, closely supervising the process. In other words, actors may jointly inspect the gun with the armorer, but never on their own. Baldwin had been told during prior gun safety trainings that a gun must be rechecked and cleared by the armorer if the actor unilaterally checks the gun without the armorer's supervision. Baldwin followed Gutierrez Reed's instructions during the gun safety training and throughout his time on the Rust set. This is him saying, it's not my fault. I was told not to check it. I didn't check it. You can't be mad at me for not checking it. I was told not to check it. Soon after arriving on set, Baldwin had dinner with Hutchins, and they talked about uh, the vast landscapes of the desert, and they talk about the the dinner that they all had together, and their goals for the movie, and that the morale on the film set was high, and that things were going well, and that um, Lane Looper, I feel like this is also partly answering the internet, um, but it also goes to the original complaint in this case that issues were being raised on set that were a problem, but that Baldwin didn't know about those issues, and that Lane Looper, who has been quoted in other lawsuits, is saying, we raised these issues. Baldwin was saying, no, I only knew there was an issue with people driving too far to set or wanting a better hotel room, not that there were issues with gun safety. So this is Baldwin distancing um, himself from that in, in this lawsuit. They then talk about the events of October 21st, 2021, saying that they were preparing to rehearse a scene in the church. In the scene, Baldwin's character takes cover in the church after a shootout, and the scene involves a close-up view of the firearm, a gun held by Rust, that he is required to cock before a shootout begins. And then it it puts in some of the script of Rust talking about the shootout. They talked about the rehearsals. Um, it says, On October 21st, Gutierrez-Reed relieved Baldwin of the gun shortly before lunch, Unbeknownst to Baldwin, a chain of mistakes and missteps by cross-defendants had already been set in motion that would lead to the tragic loss of Hutchins' life that afternoon. The key responsibility of the armorer and the props master is to ensure the security and safety of the gun, ammunition, or props, respectively, used on set. On the morning of October 21st, Zachary and Gutierrez Reed arrived on the Rust set to find that a full box of dummy ammunition had mysteriously appeared. The box had markings similar to those used by Kinney and PDQ to denote dummy ammunition. Zachary knew about Gutierrez-Reed, quote, misplacing things and mixing them up, end quote, yet as far as Baldwin is aware, made no complaints to the production company or others on the set. Crew members have also since reported that Gutierrez-Reed took the prop guns to a shooting range where she loaded them with live ammunition and did target practice. That's an interesting thing to me that they are reporting that Gutierrez Reed took the prop guns to a shooting range and shot them with live ammo. I don't know if that would have been proper or not in the course of her job. It could have well been proper. But what's interesting, and we'll get to it later in this complaint, is that the gun was in such disorder that the FBI had a hard time firing it. So I don't know if this weapon in question would have made it to a range and had shot well because the FBI could barely fire it once to do their testing on it because the gun was in such disorder. So it's interesting to me that they're saying that Reed took all the prop guns to a shooting range. Maybe it was part of their job. I don't know. That That's set up to be something where it's like, oh, gotcha. But it could just be that was part of the gun. Um, that was part of what was needed to do to make sure this gun was safe to use with dummy rounds, that it was in full working order. It just It doesn't seem like the armorer doing that is a problem. It's not like she was handing it around for people to shoot on set for recreation. But before we get into the rest of this episode, we need to have a word from our sponsor. Just because it's January doesn't mean you have to do new year, new me. Look, it's okay to just say, hey, it's me. But maybe there's things I would like to improve with the hair down there. And Manscaped has got you covered for that. My entire family at this point is using Manscaped products and enjoying them. There is a reason that over 7 million people worldwide trust Manscaped. Look, it's not just the trimmers for the hair down there. You know how much I love the nose hair trimmer. I really do. We don't talk about this nearly enough, but it makes a huge difference when you get a trimmer that can trim not just your nose hair, but it can get those pesky little ear hairs. We of course don't have that problem. We we're not talking about your hair, but the weed whacker gets that nose hair and it is so helpful. And their body care is absolutely something you should give a try. Their body wash is hydrating and smooth and they have a fantastic little scrubber that I absolutely love using with the body lotion. It's a nice exfoliation. Look, their products made for him. That can be very much enjoyed by you. So no matter what your resolution is this year, I think you're great just the way you are. But maybe, just maybe, consider that nose hair trimmer. I'm teasing, not you. Of course, not you. So be sure to head over to Manscaped.com to get our exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping with code Lawnard. That's code Lawnard for 20% off and free shipping at Manscaped.com. So New Year clean and tidy me. (laughs) That's what we're going with. Well trimmed. All right, let's get back into today's episode. So they have what looks like a email, but it could also be a text message because it's got phone numbers that are are redacted out. So it might just be the dump from text messages. But this is from Weston Brownland to Sarah Zachary. Hey, you may know this and it's hearsay, but I'm telling you this because it's info you should have especially given the investigation. And also based on reading this, I kind of think it's a I kind of think it's a text. I just heard from someone claiming that they know the driver of your prop truck and that the armorer allegedly went out target shooting last night with the gun Alec had and then fired. Um, there's your box of rounds. You said you didn't know where they came from. Given what you told me about the armor misplacing things and mixing them up, there's the live rounds right there. I would disclose that to the police if that's not info you already knew. So to it sounds like a text to me. And then at the bottom, it says source extraction advanced logical." So I think these are um, I think these are extracted text messages, but this is a text from somebody on set saying, "Hey, this is all hearsay, but I heard from somebody else that, she went out target shooting. It goes on to say that Gutierrez-Reed professes to have no knowledge as to the origin of this ammunition. And Gutierrez-Reed stated in her complaint against Kinney that we've covered here on this channel that she was, quote, happy that they had a full box of dummy rounds to work with because Sarah, as prop manager, had brought dummy rounds to the set in the past as part of her duties. Gutierrez-Reed didn't think any more of it at the time. Regardless, Gutierrez, Reed, and Zachary maintained a workspace that was as recklessly disorganized as PDQ. Police photos taken after the shooting show that boxes of ammunition were stored in the prop truck, prop cart, and loose ammunition was found all over the place, for example. And then it shows photos of ammunition all over the place. Some of it's in a bucket. Some of it's like on the top of a what I think is the prop cart. It says loose ammunition was found in the prop truck, and it shows uh, one of the same photos from above, but different ammunition, just kind of bullets all over the place. Loose ammunition was found in the prop cart, and it shows those photos. Loose ammunition was found in bags, and th- there is like a Mary Kay bag that has just ammo in it, just just all in it, with a different, different kind of a tip than the other ammo, just ammo all in it. Storing ammunition in an organized manner offers an important layer of safety that is required of the armorer profession. I feel like this is common sense. By leaving loose ammunition around the set and in prop areas, Gutierrez, Reed, and Zachary had no way of knowing what piece of ammunition used in the prop guns, where each piece of ammunition used in the prop guns originated. They said there was also a failure to secure weapon, and it has photos of weapons and boxes and propped up against the safe, not in the safe. Police photos confirm that guns were also stored loaded. This is an egregious safety violation by Gutierrez, Reed, and Zachary, and it showed other police photos of weapons from set that were clearly loaded. It said even the bandolier that Zachary gave Baldwin and which Baldwin was wearing on his body contained live ammunition. And then it shows the box, which I'm assuming is number 12 that we were talking about earlier that has one um, round that is silver. Um, where the others have gold. So it kind of does, t- just to my eye, stand out that the color is different. And those were the live, um, that was the live round, I'm assuming, based on the fact that it has a big square in red around it. And we saw another picture lined up with some that have gold and some that have silver. They say specifically the FBI report concluded that double-base smokeless powder A propellant used in firearms was identified in a cartridge taken from Baldwin's bandolier. So there was live ammo in his bandolier. Gutierrez, Reed, and Zachary negligently performed their duties in numerous other ways leading up to the morning of October 21st, and then it lists those ways. Before loading a weapon, an armorer must check each round to ensure that it is a dummy round. Dummy rounds from afar look like regular ammunition, but they contain a small metal ball, a BB inside of them. Dummy rounds are distinguishable upon close visual examination by trained professionals. They have a hole in the casing, or upon shaking, they should rattle. Uh, most bullets don't rattle, so if you shake it and it rattles, then you're going to get the sound to verify that it's not a live round. It is imperative that the armorer shake one dummy round at a time to ensure each round rattles from the BB inside. On the other hand, if the armorer shakes multiple rounds at a time, the rattling could be coming from only one of the rounds. The FBI analysis confirms that Gutierrez-Reed's fingerprints were on the ammunition box from which Baldwin's weapon was loaded. Before loading the gun, Gutierrez-Reed claims that she only shook the ammunition box and heard a jingling sound, which is what a dummy round box should sound like. So she didn't shake them bullet by bullet. She shook them, it says, or it alleges, by the box. Gutierrez reed further claims that she checked each live round before loading it in the chamber of Baldwin's prop gun. She concedes, however, that while checking, she noticed that one of the rounds lacked a hole in the casing. yet she did not remove the round. Why, fucking, why? Why? What? Why? What? There's ammo everywhere. We saw the pictures. Why not just be like, "Huh? That's I mean hindsight being 2020. That's weird. And then take it out. She concedes that while checking, she noticed that one of the rounds lacked a hole in the casing. Yet she did not remove the round, prevent the gun from being used in the subsequent scene, or alert anyone on set that the gun was unsafe. As the facts show, as they're alleging in this lawsuit, Gutierrez-Reed failed to perform her job carefully, and as a result, a live round was loaded into the gun that she had negligently failed to identify. It goes on to cite her interview with the Santa Fe County Sheriff's Office, Um, an interview which is available online if you want to go watch it. She said that before lunch on October 21st, she loaded Baldwin's gun with five dummy rounds. The sixth and final round would not go into the gun because the gun was dirty. After lunch, she cleaned the gun and put another round in, which brought the total to six. She stated that the guns were checked on set. However, she admitted, quote, she didn't really check the gun given to Baldwin too much because it had been locked up at lunch. After the incident, Halls brought Gutierrez read the gun. She opened it up and noticed that one of the dummies had been discharged. If it's a dummy round, it can't be discharged. There's nothing to discharge. It's a dummy. There's nothing in it. It cannot discharge. She admitted to the sheriff that when she checked the gun, the projectile portion of the discharged round was gone. Like it was a bullet or something. She also said that it looked like a realistic bullet and that many of the dummies have primer in the hole, but the discharged bullet did not. Although she said that she checked the other rounds and that each had a ringing sound when she shook it, which is indicative that it was a dummy, she admitted that the box of dummies, which she had received approximately a week before Kenny at PDQ, contained some quote-unquote wonky rounds. You've seen me talk about the wonky rounds in other lawsuits. What do you mean by wonky? That they weren't dummies? <sighs> she stated that there may have just been a bad round in the box. By bad, do you mean live? Let's, let's define these words. What do we mean by bad round? Because if it's a dummy, what's bad about it? Oh, maybe that it's live. They say gutierrez reads admissions demonstrate her failure to properly check the gun, as well as Kinney and PDQ's failure to supply only dummy ammunition. Moving on. The afternoon of October 21st, When the cast and crew returned from lunch or resumed preparations for rehearsal, Halls handed Baldwin the gun. While handing Baldwin the gun, Halls announced, We have a cold gun on set. Cold gun is widely accepted and significant term in the film and television industry. It refers to a firearm that has no blank rounds, let alone live rounds, loaded into the gun. The term of a cold gun is meant to assure all present that the gun has just been properly checked for the absence of ammunition other than dummy rounds. So blanks are going to make a noise. Obviously, live rounds are live rounds and shouldn't be on a film set. But blanks are going to make a noise. Dummy rounds aren't going to even make a noise. So it's saying that there's no ammunition other than dummy rounds, which contain no charge. It goes on to say that Hall's later admitted to script supervisor Mamie Mitchell, who, by the way, this is all coming underneath Mamie Mitchell's lawsuit. Mamie Mitchell sued and then these, this is all the sub-litigation going on in this litigation. Hall's later admitted to script supervisor, Mamie Mitchell, before handing the gun to Baldwin. He checked the revolver drum and noticed that one round was different from the others. If you are using a weapon and you get to one of these things is not like the other, take a beat, maybe, and ask somebody. I, I just worry that the concern about money was pushing people to continue moving past and pushing past a lot of red flags here. It feels like there's a lot of red flags here. You let me know what you think. Are you just going red flag, red flag, red flag, red flag? (sighs) Halls later admitted to script supervisor, Mamie Mitchell, before handing the gun to Baldwin. He checked the revolver drum and noticed one round was different from the others. Mitchell claims that he noticed that five of the bullets were marked and one was not. So one was not marked like it was a dummy round. So one of these things was weird and everybody just kept going. Although this account conflicts with Halls' own statement, it is apparent that Halls either failed to check the gun or failed to voice any concern about the red flag. He observed and then checked it, even though the lawyers see the red flags. Keep reading, Emily. Either failure constitutes negligence, given that Halls was the safety coordinator on set and falsely announced to everyone that the gun was safe. It'll be very interesting to see how everybody turns on each other in this because this makes Mamie Mitchell a very important witness to the countersuit, but Mamie Mitchell's also suing Alec Baldwin in the same suit. But if it all goes to trial at the same time, all the information's gonna come out, no matter who's testifying for what. When receiving the gun and relying on Hall's representation that it was cold, Baldwin did as he had always done and been taught to do throughout his career, always without incident. Specifically, as described above, an actor cannot rule that the gun is safe. So he's saying, look, I'm doing what I'm told. Just doing my job. It's the responsibility of other people on set. In this instance, Gutierrez Reed and Halls. If actors open up their own gun on set to confirm the absence of live ammunition outside of the armorer's close supervision, the gun should be repossessed by the armorer and cleared again. To Baldwin's knowledge, several other actors on the Rust set followed the same process, Relying on the appropriate crew members representation that the gun was called again. This is Baldwin saying it's not me, it's not me, it's not me. In this case, it might be him and or them and is this a money issue? Is this a negligence issue? Is this a timing issue? There's a lot of negligence here, but why? Why I don't understand when people are like, huh, this is wonky, why do we just keep going? It then goes on to talk about. The scene and the layout of the scene, which is much like what we've heard from Baldwin's interviews in the media and and almost to a fault or to a T, Baldwin's um interviews in the media. And it goes through how Baldwin says the shooting happened and him holding down and holding down and holding down the hammer and then letting it go when the gun goes off. It goes on to say another individual suggested that a live round might have been in the gun, but the idea was quickly dismissed by others as far-fetched as two. Different crew members, Gutierrez, Reed, and Halls were responsible for checking the guns on set to confirm the absence of live ammunition. At this time, Mitchell approached Baldwin and said, quote, You realize you're not responsible for any of what happened in there, don't you? End quote. Yet Mitchell is now suing Baldwin in this action. After some time, a helicopter arrived and transported Hudgens to the hospital. Sousa was taken to the hospital by ambulance. Law enforcement had also arrived on scene and began speaking with those who were involved in the incident. Baldwin willingly sat for an interview, and then it goes through Baldwin um, sitting for an interview, also available online, talking about what happened in the interview, um, talking, uh, and again, you can go watch the interview online if you are so inclined. And then they talk about Sousa's recovery, and that Hutchins passed, and then the events after October 21st, 2021, in the months since Hutchins, well, years, In the months since Hutchins' tragic death, substantial law enforcement and investigatory resources have been spent to determine exactly what went wrong. The investigation has not established, sorry, has not resolved the exact chain of events, but it has brought to light numerous safety lapses that contributed to the environment that allowed this tragedy to happen. New Mexico's Occupational Health and Safety Bureau, the OHSB, which I covered their findings in another video. And again, I have a whole rust playlist over on YouTube and on the podcast that goes through these different findings. That was a scathing report by the Occupational Health and Safety Bureau. Scathing. Scathing. They go through the different safety bulletins and emails. A safety coordinator, Rust, was supposed to hold safety meetings every single day that a firearm was on the Rust set. But interviews in the OHSB discovered that Halls did not do so. Text messages to Halls showed that he had been reminded multiple times of this. Um, responsibility confirmed as much. We've heard a lot about Hulls not acting as a safety officer, so I'm not surprised we're seeing everyone turn on each other in this lawsuit. Essentially, Baldwin is saying, if I'm responsible, all of you are responsible because all of you put that gun in my hand, which when you're looking at civil liability, there is a contribution there. The, The gun got into Baldwin's hand loaded. How did it get there? And that's the question that this lawsuit is asking and has provided the most answers that we've seen so far, really, and this is constant um text message Dave per Joel, we need to do safety meetings every morning. just a friendly reminder we need to do safety meetings in the morning um it's also been discovered that Zachary harbored serious reservations regarding Gutierrez Reed's performance, including regarding her alcohol use away from set. I don't know if this I don't know if this matters for all of this going down, but we definitely saw tension between Sarah Zachary and Gutierrez-Reed. In Gutierrez-Reed's lawsuit, there was a lot of finger pointing going on there. So these are text messages between Sarah Zachary and Seth Kinney saying, I think she was so drunk that she didn't know she brought live ammunition onto the truck when she went to go get the guns from the safe. Where did it come from to be put on the truck? And Sarah Zachary texting Seth Kennedy, I told you, Hannah was blackout drunk last "quote unquote" weekend, right? I want to know. These texts, by the way, are coming in after the incident. So ten twenty five twenty one. These are coming in, um, afterwards. So I have some questions about these text messages, just based on what we've seen in in Gutierrez Reed's lawsuit. Gutierrez Reed said that Kenny and Zachary were working together. So are these. Cover text messages because these are happen. These are happening after. So are these Sarah, Zachary, and Seth? Can he speculating about what Gutierrez did or didn't do? Is that factual? These are not contemporaneous in time. These are not before the incident. These are after. I told you Hannah was blackout drunk last quote unquote weekend, right? Question mark Is this like hey? Don't forget to tell law enforcement that I told you this. I have questions about the veracity of these text messages and their purpose, but they are included in this lawsuit. Of course they are. They fit this narrative here. But again, if this goes to trial, there's a lot of questions about these, and these would likely never come in um, because they are hearsay. It then goes through more findings about the the FBI. It says in interviews with police investigators, Zachary also noted that she was unaware that Gutierrez-Reed was using marijuana in her free time offset. They're, I mean, it's the kitchen sink, right? It's all going in here. The FBI also tested the bullets on set. As alleged above, dozens of them were found to be live ammunition. Under Rust's production contract with the Bonanza Creek Ranch, uh, live ammunition was banned from the set. Well, of course, it could damage your sets. As a matter of law, under no circumstances were live bullets who have been brought onto the set. I agree. The FBI tested numerous cartridges on set and identified smokeless powder and explosive in many of them. It's wild. And so then it goes through fingerprints and where they were identified, which we talked about a bit earlier. It says, to make matters worse, it turns out that the gun given to Baldwin to use on the rust set was in poor condition. During the FBI's accidental discharge, testing of the gun, portions of the trigger, sear, and cylinder stopped fractured while the hammer was struck. The fracture of those internal components allowed the hammer to fall and the firing pin to uh, detonate the primer. Notably, that was the only successful discharge of the bullet while testing the gun, which the FBI could not get to fire, even when pulling the trigger because of the various problems with the weapon that Kenny negligently supplied. So now it's not just, this is why I say, could could the armorer have really been out shooting this weapon if it was in this poor condition? Like, d- do things just deteriorate this quickly? Uh, I, just do they? I don't know. I I would suspect maybe not, but I'm not an expert. So it's an interesting thing that this gun was in such poor condition. It contradicts the statement that these guns were out at the firing range, but also it shows you what an unlikely set of circumstances happened here that took a woman's life. That this gun was in such poor condition that it had one accidental it sounds like fire or or fire during the misfire test that was discharged because of the internal components misoperating and they were never able to use it again. It goes on to say the Rust film had numerous scenes in which the actors engaged in shootouts as alleged above. And then it goes through talking about the set and then talking and showing pictures of a scene where Baldwin's character is holding presumably the same weapon to the the child actor in this film set, saying, "Look, this is negligence. This could have this could have harmed others." It then says, "Over the last year, Baldwin has suffered substantial damage as a result of the events on October 21st. He has suffered physical and emotional, uh, physically and emotionally, from the grief caused by these events. Not a day goes by that he does not think about and suffer from the events that happened that day. Baldwin has lost numerous job opportunities and associated income." For example, he's been fired from multiple jobs expressly because of the incident on Rust and has been passed over for other opportunities, which is a direct result of the negligence of cross-defendants Gutierrez-Reed, Halls, Kinney, PDQ, and Zachary. It then gets into the causes of actions, the first cause of action being negligence. The second cause of action is equitable indemnification. Like, it's not my fault. It's y'all's fault. Any, any, finding against me is a finding against you. I'm indemnified by, from all of y'all's behavior. It was your job to ensure it was safe and you didn't do it. So I should be rightly indemnified. If Mamie Mitchell recovers damages against me, Baldwin, if Mamie Mitchell recovers against me, then I need to recover from all of you because it was really your fault, not my fault. Third cause of action, equitable contribution. Look, you at least contributed to it. And then the prayer for relief, awarding compensatory nominal statutory punitive damages where applicable, Um, awarding reasonable litigation expenses, attorney's fees, et cetera, awarding pre and post judgment interest, and a jury trial. And that is cross complaint number one. But you know what it also is? Time to thank our sponsor. Are you ever just looking for something a little bit new to freshen up your makeup routine, but you also feel maybe like me, a little hesitant to buy more makeup when you already have makeup? I found that with Thrive Cosmetics, today's sponsor, I really appreciate that not only do they provide incredible vegan cosmetics, but also a commitment to giving back. That's right. Thrive is certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. But also, every purchase helps communities thrive. So whether you pick from their Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara, which you've heard me rave about because I love it, and it comes off so easily, like it stays put when you need it to stay put, but then it washes off without me scrubbing at my eyes or using super harsh makeup remover, I love that because I really do just use water and a washcloth to take off my mascara. And I'm not tugging at that soft skin near my eyes, which I love. And it makes my eyelashes look great with no clumping. I've also been using the eye brightener a lot lately. Maybe you can hear I'm a little congested. I mean, maybe we're a wee bit under the weather and we don't want to look like we are. And it's so easy. It's a cream to powder highlight stick that you can really just draw on. I need makeup that works like crayons. And this makeup also gives back. So if you are ready to try out Thrive Cosmetics for yourself, don't hesitate because right now you can get 15% off your first order when you visit thrivecosmetics.com Lawnard. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com Lawnard for 15% off your first order order. Now let's get back to today's episode. So after that cross complaint was filed by Baldwin, there was a lot of litigation filed from the cross defendants. So we had a motion to quash the cross complaint from Sarah Zachary and and things that went with that motion. We also had Dave Hall's filing a cross complaint and then we also had motions to quash from both uh, Gutierrez-Reed and Sarah Zachary, arguing jurisdiction and other things. So there are motions to quash. There is a motion to, which means like, you, we don't even go here. We're not answering this complaint yet. We don't know who you are. Then there's a motion to strike numerous things from Dave Hall. And then there's Dave Hall's cross complaint. And that's what we're going to look at next. Um, the other litigation I'm very interested in, we will see as that gets closer to going to court, what happens on those motions to quash and whether they say, look, you're hired by a California company, you're working for these California companies, you have jurisdiction here, or whether the court says you're right, go sue them where they live. We will see what happens. Cause remember Gutierrez Reed and Sarah Zachary are not defendants in the Mamie Mitchell lawsuit. They are being dragged into the Mamie Mitchell lawsuit through the cross complaint saying, hey, by Baldwin, if this goes down, y'all are in. Y'all are in. And also saying y'all are in on December 16th, Dave Halls filed his own cross complaint. This one does not have nearly as much factual detail, but we're going to go through it anyway. Cross complaint of Dave Halls for equitable indemnity, contributory or apportionment of fault. Like, hey you say that I'm at fault, but y'all are also at fault, which is not too different from the other one. Um, I'm just not seeing that negligence cause of action. Declaratory relief, breach of contract, and express indemnity. Again, the concept of indemnity being like, if I'm at fault, then you are also at fault. So when you're looking at like a contractor, a home contractor issue, you might have a contractor that hires a subcontractor and be like, look, if I'm responsible for whatever went wrong, you're also responsible, you're the subcontractor. So it's bringing everybody in that could possibly be responsible for the thing. And could the AD, the prop house, and the props, masters, and armorers all be responsible? Well, um, look, man, when I'm looking at that lawsuit from Baldwin, all signs point to yes. They They make a compelling argument. And again, these are allegations. They have not been refuted yet but they are based on other things. The statements made by Dave Halls in part are based on other investigations. The statements made by Hannah Gutierrez-Reed were made in police interviews that are available to be viewed online. Those statements were made. What import those things have, we will see. So this is Dave Halls now suing. Alec Baldwin, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, Seth Kinney, PDQ Arm and Props, and Sarah Zachary, because of course. And here's the thing. Their lawsuit says, come now, defendant and cross defendant David Halls, and, and for a cross complaint against, and then names everybody, and then just gets right into the causes of action. That's it. That's all. Uh, first cause of action for equitable implied indemnity against all cross defendants. Um, we, we're not even alleging jurisdiction, it's just getting right into it. Cross complainant is informed and believes. That oh here's here's our um, jurisdiction. But why are you listing this under the first cause of action? Why is this not laid out like the other one? <sighs> this formatting does not make me nearly as happy. So they allege that Baldwin lives in New York and where everybody else lives. Plaintiff's action, the principal action, alleges among other things tortious conduct, allegedly entitling plaintiff to compensatory damages against cross-complainant. Plaintiff was allegedly injured and damaged as described in the operative complaint filed herein, and cross-complainant hearing contends and continues to contend that he is in no way actionably liable for the events and occurrences, tortious or otherwise, alleged in plaintiff, plaintiff, Amy Mitchell's, operative complaint, a copy of which is attached here to as Exhibit A. Sidebar, they attach all of the complaints and they keep attaching all of the complaints, making these things longer than they need to be, and Los Angeles County charges so much <laughs> to download documents. And I'm like, why? Why are there so many attachments? But that's just, you know, me, me being a content creator complaining. If it is adjudicated that plaintiff which was injured and damaged as alleged in the operative complaint, which supposition is not admitted and is denied, then cross-complainant is informed and believes and thereon alleges that the alleged incident and all damages complained of were caused directly and proximately by cross-defendants. It's not me, it's them. And each of them by breaching duties owed to cross complainant. They owed me a duty and they didn't do it. This is not written to tell a story. This is written to be legally sufficient. Can you tell the difference? The, the audience is like, I, my brain has just checked out. This just sounds like boilerplate legal writing. Yep, it definitely is not uh, going a distance to tell a story. That by reason of the foregoing, if plaintiff is entitled to recover, plaintiff being Mamie Mitchell, against cross-complainant being Dave Halls, on the basis of any of the allegations alleged, which is denied, the allegations that is, then the responsibilities of cross-complainant Dave Halls, if any, are vicarious in nature, and cross-complainant as a passive and secondary alleged tortfeasor is entitled to a judgment over and against cross-defendants and each of them to the extent such recovery by plaintiff Mamie Mitchell in that it was the active and primary negligence of said cross-defendants and each of them, which caused plaintiff to be injured. So we got to say tortfeasor, so there's that. All that paragraph that had a lot of commas, and not a lot else said, is that if Mimi Mitchell is entitled to recovery against Dave Halls, it is not Dave Halls' fault. Dave Halls should not have anything recovered from Dave Halls any recovery from Dave Halls should be passed on to the cross-defendants. Go charge them. So if you had a judgment, the million dollars or whatever, then Dave Halls is saying that passes through me and goes to them. All of them are responsible. I'm not responsible. They were the ones who were negligent. I don't know anything. Second cause of action is con- uh, contribution apportionment. So if I am found to be negligent in some respect, I'm only a little bit negligent. They're like a lot more negligent. Third cause of action, declaratory relief against cross-defendants. Your Honor, say um, this thing. Declare, declare a thing. Cross-complainant refers and incorporates the above. An actual controversy has arisen and exists against cross-complainant and cross-defendants and for each of them. And for which cross-complainant has no adequate or speedy remedy at law. In that cross-complaint, it asserts that he is entitled to be indemnified by cross-defendants and each of them. So, Your Honor, declare that I am entitled to indemnity from these cross-defendants. They owed me a duty, which will be interesting if the armorer owed a duty to the 1st AD. Fourth cause of action for breach of contract, and this has rows as well. So there's others that might be roped into this. It has rows 11 through 25. Cross-complainant is informed and believed and alleges that he entered into contract or contracts with cross-defendants and others. So the first AD is saying he entered into contracts with everyone that he's suing, the prop house, the prop master, and everybody else. Cross-complainant is informed and believes and alleges that rows 11 through 25 in said contract or contract promise to obtain general liability insurance pursuant to their respective contracts. So all of you should be insured. So even if there's a problem, all of you should be insured, and insurance should be dealing with this. Cross-complainant is informed and believes and alleges that cross-defendants also promise to obtain endorsements to those policies of insurance, naming him as an additional insured. So look, if y'all got insurance, y'all needed to get insurance, if y'all got insurance, I should also be an additional insured. So this should be all covered by insurance. So that's what this thats what this breach of contract is. Cross-complainant is informed to believe that um, the defendants and the Rose have breached their contracts by, among other things, failing to procure the required insurance, leading me to believe there's probably not insurance covering 1st AD Dave Hall's. Fifth cause of action for express indemnity. This is just against the unnamed parties, um, the Rose 11 through 25, meaning... The individuals that haven't been identified yet. Um, let's see, which is identifying that cross complainant is alleging that he entered into a written agreement or agreement with Rose 11 through 25. Do you not know who you entered into agreements with? Like, if you entered into written agreements, why are they not named defendants? Why are they Rose? Why are they unidentified? You are alleging that you entered into written agreements. Where are the people? name them. Now is the time. Which state, among other things, that cross-defendants will indemnify or hold cross-complainant harmless and defend him against any and all liabilities, damages, actions, costs, losses, claims, expenses on account of personal injury, death, or damage. So, hey, I, as the first AD, should have been indemnified by all of these agreements. And if any of you didn't do that, it's a breach of contract that's that cause of action he's alleging that the unnamed parties have breached their obligations under their written agreements where they have failed or refused or continue to fail and refuse to p- fulfill or perform their obligations under said agreement or agreements to defend indemnify or hold cross complainant free and harmless from any um from and against any claims losses damages so this all has to do with insurance and who is insured and indemnified by insurance policies Yes, there are tons of insurance actions that are involved in this as well. So then they are asking for a judgment on the first cause of action for a judgment um, over and against cross defendants in each of them for all sums that may be adjudged to cross complainant in favor of plaintiff. So this is a true cross complaint in that, uh, or in s- they're seeking indemnity in that, hey, I'm not seeking to recover for me. But if anything's recovered by Mamie Mitchell against me, you need to hold all of them responsible for it and not hold me responsible for anything. And that's for all of the causes of actions and then attorney's fees, interests, et cetera. So that is the additional cross-complaint, which really is seeking contribution and indemnity. Hey, it's not my fault. Now, we've seen news reports that this movie is supposed to resume filming soon with all the original parties. I don't know how you go to work when everybody's suing each other, pointing fingers at each other and saying, you did this and you did that. I can't imagine that the armor is back on set. I can't imagine the same prop person is back on set. I can't imagine you have the same prop house PDQ working on this. Are you replacing the AD? Like, who's getting replaced and who's not getting replaced? But this lawsuit, maybe Mitchell has to be like, the fuck did everything pop off under my lawsuit? Because all of this litigation is going to make her lawsuit take a ton longer. Because now, instead of just moving along on Mamie Mitchell's lawsuit and getting through the initial demurs and getting kind of to the heart of that case, there is all this sub-litigation with now two cross-complaints and a whole bunch of litigation coming from those cross-complaints that has to be dealt with. So this is going to slow down Mamie Mitchell's case. It will be interesting to see how it impacts the other cases, and we will be checking back in again because... We've got the Hannah Gutierrez-Reed versus Seth Kinney lawsuit still going, and all of the other ancillary lawsuits still going with this. So this is not going to be over soon. There's also insurance actions, and we've seen Alec Baldwin asking to go to mediation to deal with insurance actions, saying, hey, I'm indemnified against all of this anyway. So you're going to hear that word a lot as we talk about this, what insurance covers, what insurance won't cover, and who's responsible. But at the end of the day, what I appreciate about Baldwin's cross complaint is it seems to at least put forth a theory of how this all went so horribly wrong. And it is a just absolutely tragic set of missteps to a gun that could barely be refired to be tested by the FBI that went off and killed a woman, to the ammunition being commingled, to everyone pointing fingers at each other, and two individuals alleged to have seen wonky rounds or a round that wasn't marked and went, eh, we're not going to bring it up, it's absolutely bananas. And this is not going to end anytime soon, but none of this litigation brings back the life that was lost, the mother and the wife and the friend and the cinematographer, and none of it brings that back. But all of it makes me feel way more weird about this movie going back into production. And maybe that's just me. I would love to know your thoughts on it, Thank you for being here. Thank you for being a laundered. It's time. It's time to raise a glass and say goodbye for 2023, for the first time in 2023. And with that, may your Wi-Fi be strong. May your family sound better than my congested butt. May may they be well. May your toilet paper be plentiful. And may the odds be ever in your favor. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being a laundered. We've got a lot to cover this month. It's going to be busy. And I'm not going anywhere. So I will see you in the next one. Thanks. You can find more Law nerd goodness in our private Law nerd community over at LawnerdsUnite.com. And if you want to stay up to date with everything I'm covering, you can follow me on social media at the Emily D. Baker. I stream on YouTube on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I recap those streams for those of you a little pressed for time over on the QuickBits podcast and QuickBits YouTube channel. Thanks for being a Law nerd.